night that um, I, I, over maybe like a month or so ago, I, I really felt God leading me to do something that I probably, I, I don't know if I've really ever done before uh, from a, um, a, a teaching and a preaching standpoint on a Sunday morning or even when I was a youth pastor for 10 years. Um, and I really felt like God wanted me to go in and, and, and to take a specific book of the Bible and to begin to do an exegetical sermon series about that particular book. And I, I've, never, I've, I've never really felt led in that particular direction. Most of the time I do just a lot of topical stuff and we, we do that. And th- but this morning I really feel guided by God to, to dive into the book of Ephesians. And so over the next several, not, not Ephesians, I'm sorry, the book of Philippians, Okay, and so over the next several weeks, we're going to look at, at the book of Philippians, just going from the very beginning all the way to the very end, and just kind of really look at, at what Paul was writing to the church in Philippi, and, and the message that was there, and how that is applicable for our lives, and how we can grow and understand everything that Paul was trying to say. And so we're going to look here and, and what he was saying uh, to the church, uh, to the Philippian church. And, and, but before we kind of look, and we're going to start in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, and, and go through a couple verses, I want to give you some of the backdrop of Philippians. And we can learn a little bit about uh, the church that was started in Philippi, in the book of Acts, actually, uh, uh, chapter 15, and, and verse, starting in verse 36, we're not going to read there, but it, it sets the backdrop of what was happening and how, how the church in uh, Philippi began in the first place. And we see this is Paul's second missionary journey. He's already taken one of his missionary journeys, and he's traveled all over Europe and, and Asia, and he's kind of gone and spread the gospel and, and now, what, what's happening here is, in, in, in verse 36, we see that Paul and Barnabas are kind of just hanging out together. They're just kind of sitting around. And all of a sudden, while they're sitting around, they're, they're kind of doing life together. Paul kind of says to Barnabas, hey, let's go check out the cities where we started these churches. And let's go see how everybody's doing. And this kind of begins the second missionary journey that Paul uh, begins. And so him and Barnabas kind of set out, and the, it's the beginning of their second journey. And along the way, they passed through the Galatian region. And throughout their little progress, as they're following the Lord and kind of going along this little path, the Bible says that they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Somewhere along the way, as they were passing through these regions, Paul says that the Holy Spirit forbid him to go to Asia and to speak the word of God. And so, you know, because of this, um, and that's in, in chapter 16, verses 6 and 7, then what happened is they tried to go down to Bithynia. And there, while they were down there, the Bible says that they were not permitted to go to Bithynia as well. That, that uh, along the way, in their progress and their desire to go and, and preach the word there, somehow along the way, the Holy Spirit told them, hey, don't, don't go here, don't do this, don't, 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 don't do that. And so they, they made their way to Troas. And it is here in Troas, they're kind of hanging out in Troas, that they receive, that Paul receives a vision. And in this vision, he, he talks about how 
in this vision, there was a man from Macedonia that came to him and that begged him to come and help him. That he saw this vision of a Macedonian man that came and said, please come help us. And so what happened is, is believing that this was a sign from God, believing that this was the direction of the Holy Spirit and their particular life and, and their ministry at that, per, that particular moment, they go to Macedonia. And in Macedonia, they arrive at Philippi, which is the leading city in the Macedonia region. They're, so they're here in Philippi. And in Philippi, this is where Paul uh, meets in, in the first convert in that particular region, the first convert in Philippi is this woman named Lydia. Okay? And Lydia, in turn, not only does she believe, but the Bible says that she goes, that she must have been a, a, a person of extreme influence. Because this lady not only believes in the message of Paul, the Bible says that she goes back and gets her entire family and brings them along, and then they too believe as well. That she has so much influence that she's able to influence her entire family to also become believers. They're the first converts in the uh, Philippian region. They, this is also in that particular region, in this particular place, is where Paul encounters the girl who was possessed by a spirit. And this girl, remember, she was following Paul along, saying, you know, these spirits, you know, these men speak the words of life or eternal life, and, and she kept following along and speaking this. Well, you remember this, this girl had a, a demon in her, and she was being used okay, as a fortune teller to people in that particular community. And so Paul, after a while, got aggravated okay, at this demon that kept, you know, following them and speaking these things, that he finally turns around and he commands that demon to leave her. And, and she, that demon leaves her body. She gets set free. These people then go to the magistrates and they complain that Paul has affected their business and everything. And then the magistrates come and take them and throw them in jail. So Paul here, he gets thrown in jail this is where he ends up in prison and he experiences for the first time in his life Roman flogging. This is the first time in his particular ministry where he gets flogged uh, by uh, Roman guards. It's also in this moment where him, this is also a place, Silas is on this journey with him. This, remember, they're in chains. Paul and Silas, they're in prison. An earthquake happens while they're in prison. They get freed from these, these particular chains. The jailer who was there ends up becoming born again. Okay, all of this kind, the, 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 the magistrates come back and then repent to Paul and Silas for flogging them, having found out that they were also Roman citizens. And Paul leaves, the Bible says that Paul leaves this particular area. Paul leaves Philippi rejoicing because a group of believers had been formed in this particular region. He's rejoicing because God allowed him to plant a church there in Macedonia. And so what happens is, is about 10 years later, about 61 to 62 AD, Paul is now back in prison <laughs> in Rome. It's a story of his life. He's going around preaching the gospel and getting in trouble for it. Don't you, don't you envious? <clears throat> he's back in prison now. He's in Rome. He's in prison. And he's writing this letter 
to the church in Philippian in Philippi. And what happens is one of the reasons why this happens is the church in Philippi sends uh, Epaphrodite. These people and their names. Okay. Uh, Epaphroditus. Okay, I think that's how it goes. Epaphroditus. Uh, Philippi sends, the church of Philippi sends Epaphroditus with money and provisions to help Paul while he is in prison and to help him spread the gospel in his ministry and what's going on. And so because of this, Paul takes this opportunity to write the church in Philippi back. He, he writes them back. He, he, he writes this letter that we have, that we now know is, is a part of the canon in the Bible This uh, here. Charles Swindle says this about the book of Philippians. He says, the Apostle Paul did not write Philippians in response to a crisis as he did with Galatians and Colossians. Instead, he wrote to express his appreciation and affection for the Philippian believers. More than any other church, the believers in Philippi offered Paul material support for his ministry. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 11 and Philippians chapter 4 verses 15 through 18. Paul's affection for these people is clear throughout the letter as he encouraged them to live out their faith in joy and in unity. All right? We see here that Paul had a special bond with the Philippian church. And the letter right here that Paul writes is one of the only letters that Paul writes, one of the only epistles that Paul writes where he's not trying to correct the church for something that they're doing wrong. Or he's trying to speak life and encouragement into them to continue to grow into maturity and to be the people that God wants them to be. And so let's look real quick in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayers with joy in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. And since both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. In this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in the real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having filled having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. All right. The subtitle of my sermon today is called Get in the Game. Okay? Get in the game. All right? Just get in the game. I am a, I'm a basketball coach. I coach basketball. I coach varsity and junior varsity basketball, and I've coached junior varsity basketball for many years. I've coached, coached little city league basketball for years. Um, one of the things about coaching kids um, that's, you know, very interesting and always fun, and especially with my own children who 
you know, you know, grown up playing sports and stuff like this, is that they, you know, it's, they always want to be in the game. You know what I'm saying? I mean, who wants to sit down and not be in the game, right? Nobody wants to sit down. And it was so bad that, that any time that I would take my oldest son out of the game, he would, like, complain to me, okay? He would, like, whine and complain. And he would sit there for a second. He'd be like, Dad, I'm ready to go back in. And I'm like, hold on, other people have to play too. It's not just about you, okay? And, um, and, but they, anytime a kid, I've, I don't know if I ever had an experience outside of maybe a kid being injured and saying, no, I, I don't want to be in the game. Okay, I don't think I ever had an experience where I said, hey, you get in the game. We're like, oh, no, 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 no. That's, it's not what I want to do. No, these, these kids were always willing. They were always wanting to be in the game. They wanted to participate. They wanted to be a part of what was going on. They wanted to play as much as they could possibly play. They were always wanting to be in the game. And today, I want to talk to you. I want to kind of like, you know, reach out to the inner child in you and say, get in the game. Okay? That the coach is telling you, the coach is calling you. He is looking at you. You may be sitting on the bench right now. You may be warming, you know, that bench up. You may be a glorified water boy, but he's looking at you right now and he's saying, it's your time. Get in the game. Okay? And so I want to look at this. Paul says here in verse 3 and in verse 4 that he thanks God every time he remembers them and that he prays with joy in every prayer. Why is it that Paul... Why is it that the Apostle Paul, when he's talking to the Philippian church, that he is so gracious, that he is so thankful for them, that every time he prays for them, he prays for them with joy? Why is it that Paul is filled with such gratitude over this church? Because it's not always that way, you know? I remember one time a pastor said this, he said, you know what, I'd love my church if it wasn't for the people. <clears throat> you know, you might want to think about doing something else. Just saying, right? Why does Paul look at the Philippian church and he's filled with gratitude? That he, that, that he, we see here that the church of Philippi was, was so loved by Paul. Why is it that he loved them? And I, I believe that the very next verse, Paul explains to us why he is filled with this, this, this gratitude. Why he is rejoicing all the time when he prays for them. Why? Because they were participators. Okay? Because they were participating. Listen, listen. Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for all of you in view of your participation in the gospel, okay? That I thank God and I had joy every time I prayed for you because I recognize that you participate in the gospel. They are joining in and they participate in what is going on. And God has called us, all of us, to participate, to be participators and not be spectators, God doesn't want you to be a spectator. 
He doesn't want you sitting around watching what is going on on the sidelines. Just saying, well, I just, I like church. Church is fun. It's just my little Kiwanis club, my little YMCA where I get to go. No, God wants you to join in. He wants you to get in the game. He wants you to be a participator. And you know what the word participation means? You know what it means to be in participation? Okay, it means this word in the Greek that, that, that we translated to our English word, it means to have fellowship, to be in association, to be a part of a community, to be in communion, to, to this joint participation together. That we do life together. Okay, that we join in together in multiple ways, in multiple aspects, that we learn how to do life together. That's what it means to be a participator. You see, you are not meant to be an island unto yourself. You are not meant to do life by yourself. You were created to participate in this great adventure of spreading the gospel of God to all the world. You got to be a participator. And there are lots of opportunities for you to t- participate, not just here at Church on a Rock. There are parachurch ministries. There are other churches, even in our community here in Calera, that are fantastic churches. Okay, but you got to plant yourself and participate. You need to be a participator, be involved in small groups, be a part of ministry teams, be a part of outreach, be a part of serving, ministering to the youth and the children. Find ways to participate in the gospel. Paul looks at this church and he rejoices in them and he has no words of correction to them. And one of the very first foundational reasons is, one of the reasons why is because they are participators in the gospel. They have joined in this community of faith and they're saying, we're going to do it together. We're going to do life together. We're going to spend time together. We're going to encourage one another together. We're going to do outreach together. We're going to do discipleship together. We're going to love people together. We're going to do it together. They are participators. And God has called you to be a participator. And it's through this participation in the gospel that sets the backdrop for, the back, backdrop for what he says next. It's through their participation. It's because of their participation that Paul is able to go on in verse 6 and he says this, For I am confident of this very thing. That he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul's confidence that God will perfect the good work in them was because they participate in the gospel. We hear that verse quoted all the time. Oh, for he who began a good work will be faithful to complete. And we're like, yes, Lord. We don't even really realize that the backdrop of what Paul was even saying about this is in light of their participation in the gospel. How can God finish his work in you? How can God complete his work in you if we lack the very basic disciplines of participating in this kingdom that we have been born into. How can that happen? 
How can God complete his work in us when we lack a burden for the lost, when we lack a burden for our fellow believers? How can, how can God finish his work in us when we lack a desire and a passion to be in fellowship with other people within the church, when we lack a passion and a desire to see a lost and broken world around us come to know Jesus? How can God finish his work in us? When we lack the basic principles of doing the, 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 the three things that God tells us to do, the three things that all of the scriptures can be summed up into doing three things. When you look at all of the Bible and all the rules and regulations of the word of God and all the laws of the prophets and all the things that God tells us to do can be summed up in doing three things. Loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your, peop- love your neighbor. Love people the way you love yourself and to go into all the world and make disciples. That's the three things. You don't have to worry about doing something wrong when you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You don't have to worry about falling into error if you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. I mean, as far as when it comes to being disobedient and sin. Now, you always have to make sure that whatever you believe theologically lines up with the word of God because it's easy for our minds to think things are true that aren't necessarily true. That's why the word of God has to be the final authority in all those matters. It's not hard to participate in the gospel with other people when you have a genuine love for your neighbor. It's not hard to want to be a part of relationships, ongoing relationships with your people, with people in church, when you have a genuine passion for each other. And it's not hard to be motivated to be a part of outreach when you hear and want to obey the call of God to go into all the world and make disciples. God has called us to be participators. It is our participation in the gospel that sets us up for his ability to work in us and complete the work in us. It is your job, it is your calling, it is your anointing to be participators. It is. God has anointed you to participate. He has called you to participate in the gospel. God has called you out. He has sanctified you. He has rescued you from the dominion of darkness. He has called you out into this glorious light, into this glorious kingdom, so that you can participate in something greater than yourself and something that you could ever attain and build for yourself here in this world. And God wants you to participate. That's your calling. That is your anointing. Okay? Now, God started the work in you. He started it. He began it. Okay? As a matter of fact, it's not about you seeking him. He sought you out. While you were still sinners, Christ died for you. Jesus gave his life for you while you were still in your sin, while you were still in rebellion, while you didn't love him, while you, you cursed him. He still reached out to you. He still loved you. He still beckoned you. He still called you. It started with God. 
in your life and everything that you are and every passion that you have and everything that you've done for the kingdom of God, it all began with Jesus reaching out to you and doing everything for you that you needed. It began with him. It began with him. And it will be completed by him. You don't have to complete it. You don't have to make it finish. You don't have to worry about somehow making your life some refinement to be some cookie cutter type person that we all kind of fit within this mold. No, what you have to do is you have to follow the calling of God, the anointing of God on your life to participate. And through your participation, God will complete the work in you. And it won't be something that you have to worry about, fret about, or try to make happen yourself. God will make it work in you. He started it, and when we join in participation in this good news, he will complete it. He who began an excellent undertaking in your life, he will be the one that finished the works. And Paul goes on, and he talks here, he goes on in verse 9, and he says this. He talks about this prayer that he has for us as believers, this prayer that he has for the church in Philippi. He says, and I pray, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may be able to prove the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. <clears throat> and I pray that your love may abound. That word love, it's the Greek word agape love. All right? There's primarily two different, two different loves in the Bible, in the Greek language. There's filial love, which is a brotherly kindness. It is, it is, a, um, it is a, you know, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. It is, it is um, that, that's the kind of love it is. And the world has that kind of love. People in the world have that. They live with that kind of love. It's, it's no problem. Jesus even says this when, he, when he's talking about loving your enemies. He said, what, what good does it speak of you to love people that love you back? Because even the world does that. That's a, that's a filial love. What does it speak of your love when the only kind of love you can have is love for people that love you in return? Well, Paul here is talking about this agape love and it is, agape love is literally God's love. God's love. Because how many know that God loved you when you didn't love him back? How many know that, that God's love, when you think about love and what it refers to, what, is, what, what love is defined at in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love is patient, love is kind, it designed, envy is not boast, it goes on and on and on. Okay? How many know that God was kind to you even when you weren't kind to him? How many know that God was patient with you even though you were wallowing around in your miry pit? Okay? God, God's love for you was there, okay? And even on that cross, Jesus, he said, Jesus said, when you see me, you see the Father, and we see Jesus hanging on a cross, and we see people hurling insults at him, and what does he do? He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, that even in a place of anguish, even in a place of betrayal and hurt, that the love of God was being poured out on a people who were cursing him to his face. 
And it doesn't matter what you've said or what you've done or how far you've gone in your life or what you've done in your past. God's love has always been there and it will always be there and it will be there despite what you do or how well you live. That is God's kind of love. And so Paul here is praying to the church at Philippi that they, they would have the love of God and that it would abound more and more inside their hearts. That God's love would abound in them. That same kind of love that God loves us with would abound inside of our hearts. That it would abound inside of your hearts. And that it would do so, and actually speaking, that it may overflow and spill out in excess, is what Paul is saying. That, that God's love, his agape love, would be in us so much that it would just overflow in excess in our life. That it would overflow in excess in the knowledge of things, ethical and divine, and in all perception. We look at that word knowledge and discernment. That the agape love of God would overflow in our lives in excess so that it affects our knowledge of things ethical and divine, and it affects our perception. I had somebody tell me something when I first entered ministry, my early years of ministry, that has stuck with me over the years and for the most part has proven to be true time and time and again. And this person told me that perception is 90% of the truth. That what others perceive about you or other circumstances are true regardless of the facts. And this is true. We make perceptions all the time, do we not? We perceive situations. We make perceptive presumptions about people, about circumstances, about things. We see things in the news and we immediately jump to our own perception of truth about that situation. Regardless of whether or not we have the facts or not, we jump to conclusions and we create perceptions. We get around people new people that we meet. We go to places and we automatically, immediately create a perception about that particular person. And so the, the truth is, is that if people perceive me as somebody that is inter- unapproachable, okay, then whether or not I'm unapproachable or not, to them that is factual truth. You, you follow what I'm saying? Okay? When you perceive something about another person, okay, to you, that is truth, whether or not it's actually true or not. And it could be 100% false, but based entirely upon a presumption or what we would call a perception. And Paul here is talking here that our agape love may abound more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. And that word discernment is another word for perception. That the agape love would affect the way that we perceive people. That the agape love would affect the way that we perceive situations. 
How many of you know when you let the agape love, the love of God, that is not offended, that is not hurt, that is not going to allow themselves to be worked up by other things, when you allow the love of God to overflow in excess in your life and to affect the way that you perceive other people, that will only help you out in the long run and help your ability to love people and to be compassionate and forgiving and all those kinds of things. Because your perception is now being, being influenced by God's love. So, um, our perception is our identification and interpretation of people and events around us. Our ability to become aware of something through our senses, through our feelings. That's what our perception is. Our, the, when we perceive, it's us learning or trying to figure out things intangibly without knowing facts. It's, and so here's the problem. And we kind of, when it comes to perception... We've already established this, even here in the past couple of weeks, talking about the armor of God, okay, that our emotions, feelings, and even our mind cannot all the time be fully trusted. You cannot trust your feelings. You cannot even trust your mind because your mind is not always going to tell you the truth. And your feelings aren't going to always tell you the truth. And your emotions aren't always going to tell you the truth. They're not going to lead you in truth. And you cannot trust those things. But that is exactly where we formulate our perception. That's exactly where we formulate the perceptions of our life. Is in our feelings and in our mind. So what Paul here is saying, and he's praying, he's praying for the Philippians that they will gain, that they will gain knowledge of ethical things and their perception of reality through the agape love of God, okay? That they will gain this through the agape love, that God's love will abound so much in our life that it will affect the way they think about what is right and wrong. I mean, you know that God, God can guide you just like, okay, uh, here's an example. We just... We just got to talking about at the beginning of this particular sermon series today um, that Paul, while he was traveling on his missionary journey, God forbid him to go to Asia and preach the gospel. Well, why would God forbid him to go to, to Asia? I mean, this, it's not like the word of God says don't go to Asia and preach the gospel, right? Okay. When the love of God, when God's love is abounding in us, Okay. It helps us understand, and I know that that's not necessarily an ethical example, but the Bible here says it helps us understand even ethical things in our life. That there are things that maybe God doesn't want you to participate in because it's not good for you, okay? and maybe that thing's not listed in the Bible. Okay. So you want an example. All right? Maybe an example could be like, a rated R movie. Nowhere in the Bible it tells you don't go see a rated R movie. 
But you know that in that movie it's going to have inappropriate stuff. And when the love of God abounds deep and it's overflowing in your life, you know this kind of stuff that I'm going to expose myself to is not good for me and my my maturity and my spiritual walk with the Lord. Therefore, God is telling me and giving me perception of something that is right or wrong in my particular life based upon his guidance and God's love overflowing inside of me. It helps guide me into truth, into ethical things, and it also helps guide me into uh, things of perception. And so we have this love of God so that we can recognize the things that are excellent in our lives. This love can overflow inside of us, okay, so that we can recognize the things that are excellent. And what does Paul say later in Philippians? Paul tells us to think about certain things. What is the thing, one of the things that he tells us to think about? Those things that are excellent, okay? Think on these things whatsoever, noble, pure, good report, those things that are excellent, okay? This is, this is exactly what Paul is telling us here, that God's love may abound more and more inside of us, that his agape love may grow and grow over, that it may spill out so that we may be able to think about the things that are excellent, even within our perceptions, even in the way that we perceive other things around us. Rob, if you'll come. You see, what happens is, is this kind of thinking, when we... When we allow this to happen, and there's a, there's a chain reaction here that I'm, I'm wanting to point out to you that happens here in verses 9, 10, and verse 11. That God's agape love abounds more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may be able to approve the things that are excellent. Okay? His love abounds more and more so you may be able to approve the things that are excellent. In order to be sincere and blameless. You see, our ability to be able to have the love of God overflow, God's love overflow, that affects our discernment and our perception is so that we can be blameless, okay, and we can be sincere. That we can can have, it creates authenticity and blamelessness in our life. This love of God overflowing. Okay? It does this, and it fills us with the fruit of righteousness. Because okay? it goes on, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, what comes, what is the fruit of righteousness? We know what the fruit of the Spirit is. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, self-control. What's the fruit of righteousness? So that you may be filled with the fruit of righteousness. So that you may bear righteous fruit in your life. So that the way that you live and the, the things that you do, the, 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 the life that you live, as you live in the righteousness that God has given you, that you may bear fruit and this fruit would be righteous fruit. Well, the fruit of righteousness is integrity, virtue, purity of life, rightness, correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting. Integrity, virtue, purity of life, correctness in the way that you think, the way that you feel, and the way that you act. That's what it means. So here's the thing. We see here, 
Paul writing to the church in Philippi. We are to be participators of the gospel. Then God works within us to complete his work. Filling us with his love to overflowing. So that our knowledge and perceptions can be pure. Creating authenticity, blamelessness, and righteous works. Now we know that Jesus started it all. But the diagram that Paul gives us here is that it begins with our participation. It begins with our participation. And that's the reason why I'm telling you to get in the game. Get in the game. Come on. You're the kid sitting on the sideline watching all the other people play and God has now pointed to you and said, it's time for you to get in the game. Here's the cool thing about, and I don't know, the kingdom of God's, you know, it's really life and death. It's not really a game. It's usually in a game. It's kind of an illustration here. So hope you catch that. It's not really a game. Okay. Here's the cool thing about this game that I'm talking about, this thing is that everybody gets to participate. It's not just five people at a time on a court. It's not. You know, the kingdom of God is not about just five people doing the work and everybody else standing around watching. It's not. I think one of the greatest, uh, you know, one of the... One of the worst testimonies of the church of our day one of the worst testimonies of the church in our culture is the t- statistic that's out there right now that says that in every church, 20% of the people do 80% of the work and 80% of the people do 20% of the work. What would happen if that was reversed? What would happen if there was more than 20% of the people that participated at a high level in the kingdom of God? What would happen to a church if we collectively said that we all have a responsibility to carry the burden of the vision and the calling of God upon this church for our community, how would that change things? So God looks at you and he tells you to get in the game. He didn't just tell me. He's not just looking out for superstar. I'm not a superstar, by the way, so don't... don't, don't. That's not what I'm saying. He's not just pointing out the superstars and saying, no, you're a starter, you're a starter, you're a starter. Everybody else, y'all got to wait till turn. Y'all got to sit over here. Let them have all the good stuff. He's not just saying, oh, we go, let's get all the pastors in the game. All you others, just, y'all just watch the pastors. Y'all watch the prophets. Y'all watch the evangelists and the teachers. Y'all just watch do what they're doing because they're doing, no, 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 no. God looks at you and he says, get in the game. Participate in the gospel participate in what I am wanting to do in the community and I am wanting to do with the vision participate and you know here's the thing I I don't know and it's not just a kid thing do you, you really think that there are people you really think that there's grown adults on professional NFL teams that are standing on the sidelines saying yeah I really don't want to go in the game today I don't want to play I mean most of those guys that are there while well, a lot of them are there because they you know make millions of dollars the reason why they got to where they are is because they love to play the game. They, they, they love to play the game. 
And what's funny is, these, these grown adults, and now we have, we have measurements, we have, we have um, things now in place to keep this from happening. But for years and years and years, these, these full-grown men would go out and play this game, and they would hurt themselves, all right? And then what would they do? They would keep playing, right? They would get hurt, whether it's a concussion or a sprained ankle or something like that, and they would have somebody help them off the side, and they'd get over there, and they'd walk it off, and they'd be like, they'd be like limping like this, like, I'm going back in the game. Put me in, coach. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like leg broken, hanging off to the side, like, I can do it. I can make it, you know, and they're, they're, this is, the, why? Because they wanted to be in the game. And you know what? When you play the game, sometimes you get hurt. Sometimes things happen. Sometimes things don't go your way. Sometimes, you know, the score looks like you're going to lose. But can I just tell you something? You're on the winning team. And you may have gotten hurt, but dust yourself off. Let God heal you and get back in the game. Become a participator in the gospel. Be a participator. Join in to what God wants to do in and through you, in and through us, as we go out and make a difference in our community. Be a participator. Learn from the church at Philippi and learn to say, you know what? I'm going to leave it all out there. I'm going to give it all. That at the end of the day, at the end of my life, I will be able to look back and say, I left everything out there for God. I left it all for the kingdom of God. I spent my life and everything that I had, I gave it to him with no regrets. God is calling you to be a participator. Would you stand to your feet? When we participate in this gospel, God is able to work in us. He's able to work through us. His love is able to abound more and more. And we're able to grow in our knowledge and our discernment. You know, one of the things, when we get hurt, when we get hurt, one of the things that helps us out and brings healing to our hurt is is taking our focus off of our own hurt. When you're going through difficulty and you're going through pain and you're going through problems, one of the greatest ways to overcome that problem is to get your eyes off that problem. One, you need to be looking at Jesus, so you shouldn't be looking at your problem anyways. And when you look at Jesus, is Jesus going to tell you, hey, won't you help some of these other people out? Does the scripture say, he who waters will himself be watered? When we give of ourselves and we learn to serve and help and participate in the gospel, then even our own needs end up getting met along the way, along the process. Even our own pains and difficulties and problems, God ends up fixing them and changing them and changing those circumstances because we immerse ourselves into his kingdom and he works all of that stuff out. He completes it. He finishes the work in us because we participate. Come on, will you close your eyes here this morning? Father, I just come before you today.